0: Hello everyone and welcome to The Regular, a Words and Nerds off podcast with your host Nathan J. Phillips. I'm a writer of speculative fiction, sometimes an editor and always a fan of any book with a good story. Today I'm recording on Ngunnawal land and I'd like to pay my respects to the Ngunnawal people and the elders past, present and emerging. Now this interview is a pretty special one for me because I get to interview Dr. Jillian Polak. Now, not only is Gillian an award-winning author of fiction, she's also written a number of non-fiction books, and she's a medievalist and an ethno-historian as well. Uh, But more importantly to me, she's a good friend, and she's been a fantastic mentor for some of my own writing and some of my own uh, world building and studies as well. Today, we discuss Gillian's latest book, Story Matrices. Now, this is a non-fiction book that looks at culture as it shapes us, and it shapes the stories that we write. Story Matrices looks at deliberate and unconscious cultural bias and cultural transmission as well. And essentially what it comes down to is, it's about identifying what we're writing, why we're writing it and reshaping it to make sure it's saying what we need it to say in a respectful and meaningful manner. It's a bit more complex than that, but uh, before I go through too much of this, I think the easiest way to get into this would just be to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gillian Polak.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a great delight to be here.
0: Oh, it's, it's, you know, absolutely. Absolute, yeah. See, this is what I was saying before, why I don't, why I pre-record the intros, because I just get tongue-tied. <laughs> but uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, we've we've spoken a fair bit before. Uh, you've been an absolute, um, I don't uh, inspiration is quite the right word, because you've actually not just provided the inspiration, but you've provided a lot of mentoring and support to my own writing and my own studies. So I very much appreciate that. And it's great to be able to give something back as well. But we're not here to talk about my writing and my studies and stuff. We're here to talk about your latest release, Story Matrices. Can you give us a quick uh, 30-second pitch? We'll be timing on uh, what that's about.
1: It's the work I've been doing for 30 years, digested into a few pages, Because people weren't listening when I said, look, there's a way of approaching culture where you don't hurt people, where you can analyze, you can have tools that you can use to analyze and understand and try new things without hurting people. And so I I, I codified it all and wrote it down and gave examples.
0: Yeah, and that's a really important point that i think that uh, story matrices touches on i I will admit that i haven't quite finished it yet i do try and finish books before uh, i do the interview but this one it really is worth a a slower a slower read to digest what's in there because as you said it's all about making sure that you have as many tools as you can to write but doing so in a respectful way that doesn't hurt people and you know it's uh I'm not using this term lightly, but it's potentially revolutionary in some of the ideas that it comes across.
1: But it comes from a different background. So my background is initially I was a historiographer. So I was someone who looked at how historians wrote and so put historians in their time and place and said, what culture do they have for writing? What codes do they use? How much do what? influence they have from the outside world where how, do, how does this change over time how does the history we tell change over time so that was that was my first specialization and then I moved into ethno history which is instead of limiting yourself to analyzing historiography you're looking at all those influences as they regard human culture so what sort of what shape of glasses do we use glasses to drink from um, all sorts of things are put up a question you actually have to look at the culture to find out what's happening how it changes over time who influences whom why when how and what came out of that was a very different approach to novels to most people because I always put my own writing in this historical context so that's why it's such a a different approach to most people when they talk about culture, because I don't talk about culture as free of time and place, who you are matters for your writing, who you are matters for your reading. And so if you don't understand who you are, how can you understand what someone else is saying about you or about someone else?
0: Yeah. And that's something that I just want to touch on something you've mentioned there as well, that this has been a, a work that you've done for, you know, thirty odd years in the non-fiction space, in the academic space, but you've also got quite the, uh, quite the the library there of of fiction stories as well. So this is not just a, you know, a theory, a uh, you know, Doctor Pollack's Good Idea Club type thing. It's actually something that you've been putting into practice for the last you know thirty years. How's your own sort of writing evolved? Well, with considering it, these ideas?
1: It hasn't evolved so much as I use my own writing. I always have to test it. You can see where my ideas started in my first novel. If you take the novels in order of when I wrote them rather than order of when they were published, you can see that I test a lot of the ideas in story matrices I I test in my own fiction. So I want to see what would happen if you reversed um. We talk about colonialism and anti-colonialism. So I was interested in what happens if you get a whole country where the culture is primarily the dominant cultural group are the people who in our culture suffer discrimination. So that's the green children help out. I have my alternate pocket universe thing. Um, Sarafat is actually the, the dominant culture of Jewish refugees from World War II. They're Holocaust survivors who in our universe did not live. And so they brought their culture to the culture of Sarfat. So the culture of Sarfat is Jewish, not Christian, Mm. and causes a whole lot of problems for Christians who think they're the most important person in in any environment, which is exactly what I feel as someone Jewish in Australia. I'm very seldom important, and I always have to defend my beliefs and and explain that, no, I don't do this thing because, and every day can be a bit. Palace sometimes i want to give that to people who see themselves as the majority culture in our culture because they don't get to see that it's something they don't experience and i thought i can let me test it in a novel let me see if i can reverse it so that the australian majority culture is the minority culture in this novel and it worked and so i could put that approach in my book
0: Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to look at it that way as well, because as you sort of alluded to there, it's not necessarily people realizing how they're doing particular things. Uh, And I know that one of the things that one of the concepts that was brought up um, is cultural Lego and it's sort of, you've got those bricks that you know are there you deliberately put there and the bricks that are kind of assumed to be there, which once you recognize them, you can actually rearrange them in a way to shape a whole new story. Did you want to talk us a little bit about that one? If I haven't just, sorry,
1: No, um, it's...
0: Raved a bit about it.
1: (laughs) I I like it as a concept. It started as Cultural Lego. I talked about it to Continuum in Melbourne, the science fiction convention, and then to Octocon in Ireland. And that's one of the reasons there's a book now, because both groups I talked to said we need more. We need to read the whole theory. It isn't called Cultural Lego anymore. So a guy called Ulrich invented the term cultural lego yeah. but there are problems with lego as, as in the, the, the company it's actually taking their copyright so i can't i have to call it cultural brickwork which is yeah. only fair because so because it applies to any brickwork mm. it doesn't have to be lego is one set and one or a set of concepts that you can bring together but any type of brickwork will do and so let's say that the lego is fantasy novels Mm. And the Meccano is science fiction novels. Mm. And there are similar structural things that you can get, but there are other things that will be quite different because the bricks are different or that the framework is different because the, the mechanics are different underneath. And science fiction and fantasy are not actually polarised enough. Um, literature, l- literary novels and genre novels, one would be Meccano, one would be Lego mm. in terms of differences and so it helps us understand the the relationships between different types of novels so a lot of us write and read from gut feeling I know this this kind of novel I like this kind of novel or I need to write this kind of novel all the brickwork theory does is say we can explain this Mm -hmm. you can know why you choose this and where you take from and why you you always have pink if you're writing a Barbara Carton style novel And it's not just because Barbara Cartland did pink in a really wondrous way. It's also because of the association of pink culturally in the 20th century, not in the 19th, with a certain type of femininity. It's saying that I'm writing soft novels that are only for women readers.
0: Hmm.
1: So there are a lot of things we do that we think are instinctive which actually draw on culture. And the brickwork theory helps us say well which bits am i doing intentionally which bits do i need to question which bits are drawing on stereotypes and hurting people and is and if it's intentional there are novelists who write stuff that to get people to react Mm. that's a legitimate choice but if you're doing it because you think this let me deal with the novel i'm reading at the moment i'm analyzing at the moment The the, the writer says publicly, I'm trying to combat anti-Semitism, but Mm. the choices she makes in the novel actually make it worse because they're reinforcing stereotypes by saying, by associating Jews with money, for example.
0: Yeah.
1: And, And it's not intentional on her part. It's just that she doesn't see what she's doing. She doesn't know the brickwork she's drawing on. And she builds a beautiful edifice, but it's flawed because she hasn't made that choice consciously.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes some of those, you know, it might not be the the major part of it, but those smaller details can really make the difference as to whether or not, you know, um, it sort of hits the mark, so to speak. Well,
1: one of the things I did not address in the book, because I need to do a lot more thinking about it myself, Mm -hmm. is gender. Yeah. Because we draw on a binary construct of gender all the time. And the question is, first of all, binary construct of gender culturally is not the only one. It's not universal. It's just what we think is universal. In, um, was it the 17th or 18th century? There were five genders in European Judaism.
0: Yeah, like, and that's something we've spoken about yeah. um, before as well, that, you know, when you look across cultures and you look, as far back as you know for some of them eight thousand years or so um, for, certainly in our indigenous culture i understand that there's a, a different construct there as well but these these are not new concepts they're just that we seem to assume
1: we that assume what's being new is always been because we have a culture that likes to assume a human universality rather than human complexity so it's just a set of tools that let us look say if we're making these assumptions they're going to affect our story let's find out what building blocks we're using and make so it's perfectly fine to write a novel where everybody's binary where men are men and women are women and there's nothing else yeah. but it's not the only choice and if we only make one set of choices then the richness of actual humans never yeah. enters our fiction ever
0: yeah, that's something um, that we've spoken about as well. And It's really this is why I want to get this book, um, you know, promoted as much as I can and try and get it into the, the hands of readers and writers um, because it does change the way you read things. I'm I'm seeing this. I'm reading uh, Shelley Parker Chance, um, she who became the sun at the moment. It's a brilliant novel. I started reading your novel, your book halfway through, and it really changed the way in which I appreciated how uh, how the author wrote it. And it was all I think it was all done in positive ways, but it also made me question of why I was reacting in particular ways and why I was seeing things that were different to what I'd seen before. That doesn't mean it's different. It just means that perhaps I haven't paid attention to the same inspirations and the same places where Shelley's uh, got her stuff from.
1: So if I've done my job... Maybe I should. (laughs) Then before you started my book, you were reading with your mind saying, this is is the novel, it's complete. I don't have to question things. But once you started... The questions you're asking said, what do I have that's culturally shared with the author? What assumptions is she making that I don't agree with? That's my theory anyway. And I don't know who's going to take that up. I don't know how people are going to take it up. That's to come. And I'm finding out as people read
0: it. Yeah. And it seems to have pretty good reviews so far. I've only read a couple of them, um, but it seems to be, I I think it's the, uh, you know, you know how when, you know, everyone who goes through sort of that year 11 year 12 English and every movie that they watch after that or every book that they read they've got to analyze because that's the mindset they get um, I think this is like that but a good way <laughs> so uh... that's
1: a, that's a that's a really interesting comment so I did year 12 in mm-hmm. Victoria in 1978 that feels like a very long time ago. That was a notorious year. It's written down in the annals of education of Victoria because that was when the HSC exams tested analytical capacity rather than Mm. literary memory. It wasn't asking how clever you're at describing a book. It actually posed theoretical questions and got us to to, to analyse them and pull them to pieces. And we didn't know that going into the exam. And a lot of people who were previously top students didn't do so well. And interestingly enough, my English grade went up.
0: So maybe this was uh, destined to look at all this sort of thing from from a young age.
1: I've been this analytical person since I was born. It's the way I think. And that's made stronger by me being Jewish because one of the things, the cultural thing, it's not a religious thing. Judaism is not a religion of faith in the way Christianity is. It's a set of cultural things. And one of the universals, people call us the people of the book, but what we really are as a culture of discourse, you have to discuss things, you have to argue, you have to question because in the processing, in the taking it on board personally or working out what you don't like and why and analysing it, that you actually become Jewish. So I think I was educated in the home towards analyzing everything around me. Not everybody mm. Jewish does this, yeah. but if I had that tendency. We're not
0: promoting stereotypes after, you know, talking about story matrices. We're just yeah. talking about how Gillian reacted in that culture. that's
1: the thing. If I have this tendency by nature and then my, my, tra- my cultural education made me worse and then history as a discipline has this as its core, mm. well, of course I do it triple, yeah. cubed, whatever. Because in spades, because because you've got a personality, who I am, exacerbated by how I was educated.
0: And on the topic of, of that education, I just want to point out here because I don't think it's mentioned um, in the profile, but uh, I think you've you've got a, a nickname around the place as Doctor Doctor because you've got the two PhDs. You're currently doing a third one, and I just want to ask about this because you know, being a non-fiction book and being something that is focused on stories and, and culture and that. How, I just want to go back to how those those initial PhDs sort of worked into that. The and... first
1: PhD <laughs> was medieval, yep. but it was looking at narrative mm. as historical evidence for how people thought, not how they thought theoretically, but literally how they thought about one period of the past. Mm. So the time between... King Arthur and Charlemagne was how I defined it for the thesis even though King Arthur was largely hypothetical how much all these place all the people and all the places appeared in French and English literature between 1050 and 1300 which mm-hmm. is terribly specific because it meant I could look at all the epic legends all the romances and all the chronicles nothing nothing in latin everything in the vernacular so mm-hmm. how people who wrote the vernacular into story different types of stories thought about the past, who the hero were, why they were heroes, why Welsh Arthur was so different from French Arthur. Mm. And all this is pretty common in medieval studies these days. But in the 80s, it wasn't. I was, it was very new ground and I was very alone. And it was a very strange thing to do. My second doctorate I wanted to do A literary novel about ghost trains Mm -hmm. because Victoria has a couple of ghost trains and I thought that would be a very cool thing to explore my childhood and its ghosts through the metaphor of trains but my favorite supervisor the one I really want to supervise says it has to be a science fiction novel so I sent him a little joke I said why don't I do a time travel novel to the middle ages (laughs) thinking that's not going to happen because I'm already a medievalist it wasn't about me learning the middle ages for the doctorate it was about me talking about time travel and how history and and fiction interact
0: so was that laying dot doc was that where that one came from like doc doc. yeah so that was so, my
1: thesis novel
0: yeah that, that's a great and i'm just going to put a little you know plug in for it here so for those who, who haven't read or unaware of it it's basically a um if i can get this right it's the, the premise is a time machine that's you know used to go back and study very um, initially what's the word You're using stealth so very much behind the scenes not interfering or anything just are there to observe and study what happens and then uh, things happen interactions happen and um, doesn't quite uh, work out that way.
1: My favorite outcome of that was after I finished the PhD and everything was passed and it was great and mm-hmm. all the rest of it, I thought, but what. Be, I can't publish unless I'm sure that the science is accurate. So I asked CSIRO if any, because I had a contact there way back then, um, was anybody interested in beta reading it. Mm-hmm. And I got comments from scientists back. Apparently, my hydrogeology was amazing. <laughs> it makes sense. My mother was a geology teacher. Yep. But the behaviour of scientists was the thing that got them. The thing that a lot of people reading it say this feels wrong.
0: Because, because they haven't hung around scientists
1: right because yeah. it was a scientific expedition where the history mm. was secondary and apparently scientists tra- trapped in a cave together are likely to be behave the way mine did yeah. <laughs> which I love because um, I've got caught so, so many people have said but people would be good if they time travel; they wouldn't do these things
0: yeah I, I have to admit my, my cynicism sort of comes up a little bit more than uh, than assuming people will be good but uh That's uh, probably my own cultural brickwork coming out.
1: But the cultural brickwork of scientists in science fiction novels is that they're the good people, they're the educated people, they're the ones with the special insights, the understanding of humans. But some scientists have all those things and a lot don't, a lot specialise in their science and are the world experts in these things, not in human behaviour and certainly not in history. Um, So I took, I come from a science family, so I took, the concept of scientists I knew rather than the concept of scientists from science fiction and that's why I get the, the feedback of this wouldn't happen from science fiction readers because it doesn't happen in most science fiction novels. If you read Stephen Baxter his science, scientists are much nicer than mine and and, and um, Kim Stanley Robinson, his scientists are world experts in all everything. Mine are not mine are world experts in the thing they're world experts in and what else they're good at depends very much on who they are and where they come from.
0: Yeah, and one of the one of the other interesting things is, um, or that I found in in sorry, is it Lang or Lang Long doc, doc? In in actual in French, it's Long Doc. Excellent. I've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. My apologies. I've only actually read it. So, um, but but there
1: um, is there is a regional French pronunciation where it's got the the, the broader a. So nothing's actually okay. wrong. It just means you come Excellent. from the place.
0: Yeah. But the, one of the things that I liked is the scientists were not just the, you know, you get the generic scientists a lot in, um, in science fiction and, you know, it's, it's there, uh, I say the scientist and I know people can't see it, but in air quotes, and they just cover all of the sciences and you don't really, you don't have as much of specialization and the differences between them. Whereas in, in doc. I'll get it right eventually. Um, (laughs) It actually it did have the different behaviours of the different scientists and they had their specialists and they were very different people. They weren't just carbon copy but doing physics instead of chemistry and that sort of thing.
1: The thing I was reacting to was not the specialisation stuff, actually. Mm. It was Daniel Jackson
0: yeah, yep.
1: Stargate because, because I am actually the closest thing you'll get, one of the very many closest things you'll get mm. in the science fiction world to a Daniel Jackson because of my multiple doctorates. Yeah. And I can't do even a tenth of the things Jackson has to do, as the expert on everything. I read a dozen languages, but they're not the languages no one's ever deciphered before. Mm. Their languages that are related to other languages I've learned.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think of who it is. There's a um, a, a weapons um, expert that, uh, or stage fighting expert that uh, does a bunch of YouTube stuff, and in one of one of her rants, for lack of a better term, she talks about. Um, Bruce Banner having Mm. nine doctorates. And it was like, what are you doing with your life that you have to do nine doctorates? Surely they should be getting some job, you know, something else. There should be something else you can do other than sitting there and getting nine doctorates. And,
1: and And even my, even my doctorate I'm doing now, I'm largely doing it because I've got a scholarship and a scholarship for a doctorate is a, is a lot more than you'd make as a fiction writer in the same time and under COVID. And, and I felt very guilty doing it because I thought I'm depriving someone else of that money. But given COVID and given the university cutbacks and everything, I'm actually not. And that's so I'm very ambivalent about my third. It's giving me pure research time, which is wonderful. And with, with supervision by two amazing, amazing scholars, which means I'm growing, but it's not the big skills acquisition my first doctorate was. So I joke that for my first doctorate, I had to learn nine languages. For my second, I already had five. And for the third, I only need one. But actually, it's worked out two because some stuff comes up in other languages occasionally. But yeah, it's it's not diminishing returns. But doctorates, each doctorate you get has a diminishing amount of return on your life. You're Can not th- yeah. you're not I- going to get university jobs with nine doctorates. No, you're not going to learn the basic skills that you learn from a doctorate in different disciplines, you learn different skills, but you don't need to prove yourself in other disciplines beyond a certain point. One of the reasons I did my second doctorate, the big reason was because I wanted to get back into academia and I was told my first doctorate would not get me a writing job. Yeah. I would not be a permissible in, in literature. I'd only be permissible in history and medieval studies. And I wanted to teach writing.
0: And that second doctorate, uh, was that, I was just trying to remember, was that the one that was on fairy tales or was that something no, that you just that picked up in long between? Long, long. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yes. The we did mention that
1: fairy tales. So the yes. doctorate is pure literary studies, hmm. which is very good for me because I'm learning that the writer can't be part of everything. Yeah.
0: And I've just, um, because my, it's, you know, we're recording late on a Sunday and my brain is not really with it. So I have to admit, I did have to use a calculator to work out how long nine doctorates would take. And uh, I'm just looking at it going the amount of time that's put so into that. It
1: depends on what kind of. And
0: doctorate. his age. <laughs>
1: no, seriously, it depends yeah. on what kind of doctorate. I have a cousin who did his master's in six weeks. Oh, wow. did he manage that? It, it, was, it, it was a type of mathematics. He needed to prove something. He proved it. That was all he had to do. And Mm -hmm. he was amazing at it. And that's why he got his master's in that little time. Wow. So some some doctorates are Mm time-based. Some are less time-based. North American doctorates, though, which Bruce Banner would have done and which Mm -hmm. Daniel Jackson did, um, they take a lot longer than Australian doctorates. Really? You have um, field work beforehand, and then you have a a test to to, to make sure you read the doctorate. So the the preliminary part, the initial part of the doctorate is coursework, Mm -hmm. and it can take up to four. The least it can take is two or three years. The most it can take is four or five years. And that makes nine doctorates or even three doctorates laughable. But my longest doctorate was my first, and that was four years. My second doctorate was two years and ten months. That makes it viable. And I'm 60 now, so I haven't exactly done them in rapid succession. I've had three different careers that have needed three different doctorates. And that's more realistic.
0: Yeah, I, I think that even the three is a pretty impressive feat. Um, I, I still remember when I had an interview, I had a not so much an interview, just an informal chat with a potential supervisor um, about mine. And he, it was it was the day that uh, or the day after that arts lost its portfolio from the government side of things and education was mixed into something else as well so that it was, was very day it yeah. became
1: obvious I wasn't going to get my career back yeah
0: but it was it was one of those ones where I was looking at it going this is doing it full-time at least for me um was not an option because of essentially left it too late and too many other things that I have to do um, responsibilities and the like, but on a less depressing note, let's get back to uh, stories and books and that. Um, I just wanted to, to ask about the, the books um, that you've tried out your different uh, concepts on. Yeah. Have you ever had one that just didn't quite work and you had to change it around and how has that sort of fed back into the research side of things?
1: okay I've had more than one the first one was Illuminations which was my Mm. first published novel it was initially an adventure fantasy solely set in this 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 mythical Arthurian world and my publisher was really clever and said yeah but that letter at the beginning that should be a part of the novel and you need 30,000 more words because that should be a strand and a stream and that got me thinking that Person who wrote the letter saying I found this weird manuscript always plays a part in the novel. We mostly get them put at the beginning or the end as, "Look, this has been found. It's a, a you can believe in this novel because someone special found it." Yay! Mm. But the truth is, um, we're readers and we interact with fiction all the time. So when you have someone who makes a statement at the beginning of a novel, they're going to think about things and life is going to continue throughout. And that's what got me thinking about, we're never apart from our reading. We're never apart from our writing, but we like to think we are a lot of the time. And so that first novel is what got me started on this whole trail of, we're not seeing our fiction in the best possible light for understanding what we do yeah, and for interpreting what other people do. So criticism isn't, isn't fully grounded and I wanted to see why and so yeah that was I think the biggest and then I the other one that changed things was in 2000 April the 5th 2016 I had a quadruple bypass I was in the middle of working i just finished the research was about to write up a novel set into the 17th century which which tested ideas of whether the magic that people thought was real was capable of being real in our fictional worlds, Mm. given the structure of our fiction. So I was already into the brickwork thing. Mm. Um, And and 20 days in hospital kind of changes that and no money afterwards and everything going wrong in a very serious way. And I ended up saying, what happens if I dump all the research and just write experientially Mm. about the unreliability of everything and that's the year of the fruitcake
0: yeah and that was the one that um, got up and won the Ditmar, didn't it yeah
1: yeah and it was when I so all my other novels availed the research is there the thinking's there but they're not trying to disconcert anybody they're only there if you look Hmm. the story is more important but in the year of the fruitcake all the questions I was thinking about at that moment really obvious like the unreliability of narrators in all stories yeah we like to think that that narrators are are, are, are reliable but they never actually are Mm. and i want to say what happens if i just assume this from the word go what happens if i make it really obvious that the our close links with 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 when we write we draw from stuff around us all the time so i drew from my hospital experience and I drew from the alien feeling I had being sick and Jewish and older, the fact that I never do belong anywhere, really. And so instead of keeping that in the background and saying, not important, not important, I made it the plot.
0: Mm.
1: And so it's got the questions I was looking at as, the, as the, the crucial parts of the novel, where normally the questions I'm looking at Are woven into the fabric so the only people who see them are the people who want to
0: see them yeah Uh, it's really um it's really interesting and really good to hear someone else say it as well because i'm I'm one of those people i mean we've we've spoken many times you know my my natural cynicism at a lot of things um means that every narrator for me is an you know an uh, unreliable narrator um and it's interesting because i hadn't thought of it as anything other than just me reading it wrong and maybe I have to just trust the narrator every now and then.
1: So there's a a conflict here um, between being in science fiction circles where a lot of science fiction writers do say we've got reliable narrators Mm. and being a Canberran where we know that most of the narratives we deal with every day are not reliable. I don't think Canberra has ever trusted a single politician absolutely because we see too much behind the scenes. And so what you're doing is articulating and making a link between what you're actually seeing in the stories of our everyday lives and saying, but can this apply to fiction? And I'm saying, of course it can. It does. But in the Canberra writing scene, very few people actually apply that. It's as if they turn off their day-to-day selves and say, but here we've got trust. Here we've got reliability.
0: I guess it's almost that if they can't trust their every day, at least they can trust their fiction.
1: Which, which is why some people write genre. You write a romance novel because, you know, it's got a happy ending, for example. Um, but that's not why I write genre, obviously.
0: I can't remember. I, th- I think it was Pratchett, but I, I also know that I probably think any decent quote that I you know think is uh, usually from Pratchett. Um, that's my own bias there. But uh, there was once, I can't remember where it was. It was everything is true for a given value of truth it's and i uh, think that's a good way to look at it
1: (laughs) it's not completely correct that that still assumes a a certain set of values
0: Mm.
1: but it's a good way of looking at it yeah and and who we are matters in how we read and how we write in how we see the world and judge it
0: yeah it's it's another one that i I think i've mentioned this on a couple other podcasts as well that and I think this sort of ties in nicely with the the cultural brickwork idea and that idea that we've got to look at ourselves as readers as well in that no story is complete until it's finished by a reader. And it's, it's because there's, there's an interpretation stage, you know, and once that, the authors let go.
1: Fiction. That's why yeah. my book is not complete until I know if, which bits of it reach other people. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of the basics do just from the initial reaction to it, which is really good. I, It's going to be another two, three years before I know if I've written in a way that communicates, which is always a question. We don't know when we write. Some people probably do. I don't know when I write whether what I say is going to reach people in the way I think it will. All I can do is trust that they will read it and be interested and find their own meaning in it.
0: There is a question that I would like to ask, and I think that actually leads nicely into it it's one that's uh danny v of the um of the the proper words of nerds podcast uh likes to ask everyone and i just like to steal it from her because i love hearing the answers and that is you've been doing this for 30 years you've been analyzing and writing for pretty much your entire life why do you write
1: i it's funny i do a lot of public speaking i seem to be a good communicator but I'm often left out of things. I'm not good at communicating my need to be part of things. And I get emotional reactions to that. Some of it's because I'm Jewish. Some of it's because I'm ill. Some of it's because I'm female. All sorts of possible reasons. Some of it is because I'm just not good at making my needs known. And that means I have this deep, deep need to communicate. And writing works for me. It meets that emotional need to communicate. And, to t- and I've needed to tell stories ever since I was little, whether people listened or not, I need to tell the stories. My top favourite book when I was six was the Little Princess, Frances Hodgson Burnett, because Sarah, the main character, told stories to people and they had to listen. They loved listening. And she's been my, my middle name is Sarah. So when I was six, I said, look, look, she's me.
0: Nice. Uh, That's, that that really is a wonderful response. And it's, it's a, it's a unique one as well. You know, obviously everyone's response is different, but you do get some sort of overlapping ideas quite often. And that's uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not an emotional person. Usually that, that was quite a beautiful response. Thank you. Was well communicated. And now I'll stop embarrassing myself. by uh, tripping over my tongue there and, um, Look, I, I do want to say thank you very much for, for one, coming on the podcast, but also for putting story matrices out there. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm digesting it slowly because I think it needs to be digested slowly. It needs time to percolate and the ideas to sink in. Um, but it's already changing the way that I'm reading things. When I finally get some words on the page again, which has been a while, um, <laughs> it'll definitely change the way I write things. And I think this is a book that's, that will help a lot of people, not just over the next two or three years that you're talking about, but for a long time to come. So thank you very much for putting that out there thank as a resource.
1: Me, As I said, I need to communicate. And if all the things that I've done wrong and had to think about or dealt with over an interesting life can amount to something that we all need to be something in our lives. a lot and 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 this is the thing i need to be it turns out is the person who can help other people i got into trouble 20 years ago when i had a lot more energy because i needed to be useful and apparently me being useful created work for other people so i'm afraid that's still the case but in a good way i'm
0: hoping i think this one will yes it will create work for people but yes i think in a good way so thank you very much i'll i'll leave you to it and um yeah, have a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for, for having me. That's It's a no very interesting question.
0: And thank you, dear listener, for tuning into this episode of The Regular. You can find episodes, more episodes of The Regular as well as the Primary Words of Nerds podcast at uh, wordsandnerds.com, along with a plethora of other fantastic uh, spinoffs. You can also find specifically The Regular at NathanJPhillipsWrites.com and you can find Gillian Pollack at gillianpolak.com That is G-I-L-L-I-A-N-P-O-L-A-C-K dot com And aside from that, thank you very much for sticking around if you're still here for this long and I will catch you all next month. Bye.